It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The message given today to Israel with this veto is that it can continue to get away with murder. Israel cannot and should not and will not get away with it. We will not allow it. That's Riyad Mansour, the leader of the Palestinian delegation to the United Nations addressing the UN Security Council yesterday. He was speaking after the U.S. vetoed a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Yesterday on this program, I spoke with Israel's ambassador to Canada about how Israel is weighing whether to launch a ground assault on Rafah, where some one and a half million civilians have fled. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Ray, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Should the international community be taking a firmer line to dissuade Israel from launching an assault on Rafa? Well, I think there's a very broad consensus, including uh, from the Americans, that there needs to be a ceasefire. Uh, I think the terming and wording of resolutions is what people are debating now in both the Security Council and eventually uh, in the General Assembly. But I think there's a very strong consensus that was expressed, uh, has been expressed on a number of occasions that there needs to be a ceasefire that allows uh, for an exchange of prisoners and, and, and the hostages, uh, and also allows for humanitarian supplies to get into, uh, to get into the country. Um, I, it's not clear. Obviously, Israel so far has not accepted, uh, the, and, the, and Hamas have not been able to agree to uh, whatever it is they have to agree to in order to allow that to happen. But from the point of view of the international community, mm. which is, includes a lot of people, uh, I think there's a very strong desire for uh, for a ceasefire and for the delivery of humanitarian services and for the release of the hostages. And I think that that point, I think, is widely shared in, here in New York and at the UN and, and elsewhere. What did you make of the U.S. decision to veto the resolution put forth by Algeria demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire? Well, I take everything at face value in terms of what the, the ambassador, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, had to say. She believes there are negotiations underway between Hamas and, and uh, the Israeli government and that she wants those negotiations to go ahead without uh, having this kind of a resolution. Um, but I, I have to say Canada reached the conclusion uh, in this, in the last vote we took in December, that the reason there needed to be a, 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 some kind of agreed resolution was precisely because we wanted there to be the necessary end to the fighting that would allow for the exchange of hostages and and prisoners, and also, and most importantly, I think, and most critically, uh, allow. Um, humanitarian assistance to get into the country. Let me well, let it's me not, ask you about that, because this is the third yeah. time that the United States has vetoed a proposed ceasefire. Avril Benoit, right. who you may well know, a Canadian uh, who's executive director of Doctors Without Borders in the United she, States. She used, 
she used to interview me just as you are interviewing me now. A former yeah. CBC radio host. She said yesterday that the repeated blocking of ceasefire resolutions by the United States is, in her words, unconscionable. She said the United States at the UN Security Council is effectively sabotaging all efforts to bring assistance. Is she wrong? I think the critical point is, is that resolutions don't, on their own, don't create ceasefires. What creates ceasefires are agreements between combatants. We can call for them, we can argue for them, we can urge them to happen, as we have been doing. But the critical, <clears throat> the critical agreement that has to be made is between two forces that are fighting. Uh, and that's very much the case now between the Israelis and, and Hamas. And we are asking for those, for that fighting to stop. And we're asking for an exchange of prisoners and we're asking and, and hostages and we're asking for humanitarian assistance to be allowed to go in this the last point is and i think obviously avril's frustration anybody running a uh, an agency that's working in gaza is keenly aware that their uh, members of their staff are, are are getting killed members of their staff are not able to work effectively it's very difficult to get uh, to get stuff in, even with a ceasefire, it's difficult because the uh, number of bombs that have been dropped that are unexploded and because of other things that are that are there that make it dangerous. But but we have an obligation now because of the severity of the humanitarian crisis to put that crisis at the forefront and to make sure that we are doing everything we can to make sure that uh, stuff can get in. And that is something that we really need to work hard to make happen, and I hope we can make it happen. There was great solidarity, I think it's fair to say, after the 7th of October attacks by Hamas on Israel. The United States is now, as you've mentioned, among those calling for a ceasefire. The US president has called Israel's response in Gaza, in his words, over the top. You have the UK and others who are calling for restraint. The Prince of Wales has said he wants the fighting to end as soon as possible. This is a question that I asked the Israeli ambassador to Canada yesterday, and I'll ask you as well. Do you think that Israel has lost the backing of the international community for this war? Uh, I think that Israel is, is not responding to the calls that are coming from a number of places, and you've described them well, a great many places around the world. Uh, including here at the United Nations, here in terms of resolutions that have been passed and agreed to by the general, vast majority of the General Assembly. Uh, and, and Israel feels very strongly that it has, to, it has to be able to decide on its own that it is going to continue to conduct the war so that it believes it can defeat Hamas. Where does that leave the international um, community then? Well, I, I think that th that, you know, again, I take it at face value. We have a, we have a profound difference of opinion with Israel on the wisdom uh, of further invasion, incursion into Rafa. Uh, and that is, that is clear. We also have a dis disagreement with recent decisions of the cabinet of Israel saying that the two-state two solution is not part of, 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 any, of any plans that Israel has for what to do after the war. Uh, the, again, the vast majority of countries here at the United Nations, including the United States, are clearly in favor of a two-state solution. Canada has been fa in favor of a two-state solution since 1947. So th th this is something where it isn't. It, it, it is hard for me to, to see Israel isolated in this way because I do think it's in the best interest of Israel's security 
that there be a ceasefire, that there be an exchange of, of hostages and prisoners, and that humanitarian assistance get in, and that there be serious discussions about the, the, next, the next steps to get to a two-state solution. I do think that's what is ultimately going to be in Israel's best interest mm. in terms of finding security. You find security by reaching uh, agreements and finding ways to work with people with whom you have previously disagreed in the most brutal and difficult of terms. That's the definition of peace. Making peace with your friends is easy. Making peace between enemies is extremely difficult. And those are the people that, that have to come to the table and come to a conclusion that that's the best way of protecting people's security. And I think that's that's really the position that the government of Canada has taken uh, in its conversations mm -hmm. with the government of Israel. We're not denying the importance of the security of Israel, but we are saying you, you, this, 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 this way of proceeding is not going to produce the kind of security that Israel really needs that's based on long-lasting agreements. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned, I spoke with Ido um, Moed, who is Israel's ambassador to Canada, on this program yesterday. I want to play you something of what he said when I asked him about UN reports that have come out in the last couple of days, um, suggesting that there is credible evidence that women and children in Gaza had been arbitrarily and deliberately executed. Have a listen to this. The United Nations personnel on the ground has been proven to be members of Hamas that spread lies. They are not providing any proof. So I wouldn't trust the UN personnel on the ground in any way, shape or form, especially when we're talking about the UNRWA organization as it's been fully infiltrated by Hamas. That is, to many, uh, is actually as a monopolizer of the international assistance and aids continues to steal international aid. Bob Ray, has UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, been completely infiltrated by Hamas, as the ambassador says? No, I, I, I don't believe so. We now have two investigations that are underway, one to deal with the accusations against 12 uh, former employees of UNRWA, and the other to deal with the longer-term issue of, uh, of UNRWA's relationship uh, with all of the parties in the region that's been carried out by the French foreign minister, um, uh, Minister Colonna, who I'll be meeting with this week, and so will Minister Jolie be meeting with her on Friday. So, um, I, I, you know... <laughs> Whenever somebody says something to me and your answer is, it's like sort of parliamentary debate 101, makes an ad hominem argument against the other side, that doesn't really answer the question. Uh, and that's, that's something that, that, that people are going to have to learn how to do on all sides. But it's important in um, part because UNRWA has seen its funding suspended by a number of nations, including Canada, because of this report that came out suggesting that 12 members of that organization may have been involved in the attacks of the 7th of October. I asked the ambassador about the evidence. The CBC has reported that Canadian officials haven't even seen the evidence that suggests that those 12 members of UNRWA were part of this. When he says that, that the entire organization and that the UN on the ground can't be trusted, I just wonder, this goes back to that, where does that leave the international community question? Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, we have processes underway now to find out what happened with respect to UNRWA. 
Uh, I've, in all of my discussions with the Secretary General, he's made it very clear to me in, in as direct terms as you and I are talking, saying that if, if anybody is found to have uh, to be part of Hamas or to be uh, to have done or anything and been involved in any way in what happened on October 7th or after October 7th on behalf of Hamas, they will be fired. They do not belong in UNRWA. And maintaining the integrity of UNRWA and other international institutions that are working in the region is exceptionally important. But the idea that somehow the whole organization has been infiltrated by Hamas, uh, I, I don't believe that's true. Uh, and it's not just that I don't believe it's true. We are now conducting as thorough an investigation as we possibly can in very difficult circumstances in order to to get at the truth. And we do have to get at the truth, but we don't get at the truth by smearing an entire organization. Uh, and I think that's something that everybody should should uh, should think about. Let me just in the last couple of minutes. Um because you're on the line and, and we're thinking about, again, that international community, I want to ask you about another topic, which is the death of Alexei Navalny. You have called this an atrocity. You said that Vladimir Putin needs to be stopped. Again, that international community has reacted very strongly to, to what has happened in the last few days in that prison camp north of the Arctic Circle. What should be on the table? What should be done, do you think, in the wake of the death of, of Alexei Navalny? Well, I think I think... I think that all. I think we need to understand that um, wh what happened has happened to Alexei Navalny uh, has also happened to dozens, indeed hundreds, thousands of others uh, who are caught up in the Soviet uh, penal system uh, and in the Soviet political system. Uh, Mr. Putin doesn't like opposition, and as opposed to our system of government, where opposition leaders fret and pout and then come back the next day and ask difficult questions. Uh, in this system, uh, opposition leaders get poisoned or murdered in the street, as Mr. Nemtsov was, uh, or killed in a park, uh, or uh, put in jail. And uh, we, the, the Russians are not, not even allowing his mother and his widow to see his remains. There's been no autopsy. Uh, he appeared to be in good health uh, on videos that people saw uh, a day before uh, his his death. The Russians have said he died of something called sudden death syndrome, which for adults doesn't actually exist. So what do we do about uh, that? Well, we, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I, I, I think we, we have to do <laughs> whatever we can to increase the isolation of Russia and to fight the misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda, which has become part of his entire method of operation. Uh, and I think we're seeing, in, uh, we're seeing 1984 uh, play out in real time in the way in which Russia is conducting the, the war in, in Ukraine. And uh, as I think of it, 1984 was written by George Orwell as a warning to the world, not as a handbook, uh, as to how you do things. And unfortunately, uh, Mr. Putin didn't get the message and he's using it as, as a handbook of, of how you destroy people, uh, how you confine people, uh, and how you, in, in effect, break people down. And in the case of Mr. Navalny, how you kill them. Uh, I think the, the countries that we now need to really work hard on are those countries that call themselves part of the BRICS or other associations with Russia 
and say, you know, this is like a, this is a normal government. Brazil, well, India, th for example. Yeah, th this is not a normal government. This is not a normal way for a government to proceed in life. Uh, and, and I think the more we make that clear, um, the better off we all are. And, and I, I've, I've been trying to do that as, as well as I can from where I sit in New York. Uh, I, I think that the, the world and the Russian people deserve so much better than what they're getting from the horrific dictatorship of uh, Vladimir Putin. We'll leave it there. It's good to talk to you as always. Bob Ray, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Take good care. And you, Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. He was in New York. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.